Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is sponsored by USA Primed Frederick's Canvas. Supporting artists for 150 years, primed in Atlanta, Georgia, with the widest variety of primed and unprimed cottons and linens on the market. I've been using Frederick's for a long, long time, and it's always been a great canvas to work on in the studio. You can find Frederick's in your local art store or at frederick'sprintcanvas.com. Sound and Vision is also sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Golden is a company based in upstate New York and is committed to making the best artist materials for artists to make work with. You can get it in just about every art store and online at goldenpaints.com. Rafael Lozano Hammer was born in Mexico City in 1967. In 1989, he received a degree in physical chemistry from Concordia University in Montreal, Canada. He's a media artist who creates platforms for public participation using technologies such as robotic lights, digital fountains, computerized surveillance, media walls, and telematic networks. He was the first artist to represent Mexico at the Venice Biennale with an exhibition at Palazzo Van Exel in 2007. He's also shown in biennials in Havana, Istanbul, Kochi, Liverpool, Melbourne, Moscow, New Orleans, New York ICP, Seoul, Seville, Shanghai, Singapore, Sydney, and Wuzhen. Collections holding his work include MoMA and the Guggenheim in New York, the Tate in London, the 21st Century Museum in Kanazawa, Borusan Contemporary in Istanbul, SF MoMA in San Francisco, and many others. He's received two BAFTA British Academy Awards for Interactive Art in London, Artist of the Year Rave Award from Wired Magazine, a Rockefeller Fellowship, amongst many other awards. He's lectured at Goldsmith College, the Bartlett School, Princeton, Harvard, UC Berkeley, Cooper Union, USC, MIT Media Lab, the Guggenheim Museum, LA MOCA, Netherlands Architectural Institute, Cornell, UPenn, SCAD, the Danish Architecture Center, CCA in Montreal, ICA in London, and the Art Institute of Chicago. His show scheduled for SF MoMA has been pushed back amidst the COVID epidemic. This was recorded before the current protests and unrest for equality, explaining why the topic didn't arise, but we did speak about him getting through having the coronavirus, performance, tactility and technology, fake news, and much more. Here's our conversation. How have you been? Have you been healthy? Feeling okay? I'm feeling good. Um, I had COVID. Yeah, you got Um, it, right? I got it. It was um, five weeks in my bedroom, basically. I got mm-hmm. it in New York. Um, and uh, I'm asthmatic, so I had to be careful with that. And fortunately, um, now I'm fine. Yeah. Was it, um, did you get it early on? Or was it like, because some people who got it early, apparently it was around way before anyone even knew it was around because the asymptomatic thing, or some people just thought they had a flu or whatever. I mean, what, what stage of the, the sort of public consciousness, where did you end up getting it? So I I was uh, already sick when I went to New York, so it's possible that I brought it to New York. I may be at fault. Um, But it was only after New York that I got tested and that it got a positive. 
And um, so, yeah, I feel like I, I was right at the beginning. And uh, for example, I could get tested. Like right now, it's harder to get tested. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't think that I didn't infect my family and my wife. So that was a plus. And I also just stayed away from my studio, which meant that my assistants are, are also healthy. Um, but five I don't think weeks? I've ever been like, yeah, five weeks. Wow. Five weeks I was away. Yeah. And it took, and I felt like it, it, it lasted even past that. Like at five weeks, the doctors discharged me and apparently I'm negative now, but I still feel some, I mean, weird uh, interactions. Is it like fatigue? It's fatigue. It's in my case, I have liver pain and I have, uh, I mean, the, the, the dreaded uh, heaviness of, of, uh, of, of, uh, of the COVID was, was still there to an extent. Yeah. Oh yeah, but yeah. I'm. But I. I just read that that we do have immunity. Like it turns out that it seems like we will have some immunity, and that we don't shed the virus after about like two weeks. So mm-hmm. we're learning more and more about how this thing works. Yeah, but it certainly. Um, yeah, cold shower. Yeah, that's a lot. And it, it being asthmatic, I mean, I'm sure you were worried about that. I mean, that's you puts you at risk, right? For sure. I mean, I had this um, beautiful uh, oximeter, right, which is something asthmatics have. And it's like a $20 device that just measures how much oxygen is in your blood. Yeah, we got one. Because the key, you got one too? Yeah, we have one. (laughs) Are you also asthmatic? You're asthmatic? No, but um, I had, my wife has some, you know, some lung issues. And I had walking pneumonia once. I don't know, it wasn't Mm. too, too long ago, like, I don't know, six or seven years back. And it was brutal. And the doctor said, you know, you're going to, when you get sick, your lungs now are going to be your Achilles heel, basically. Like you're going to feel it there. So, but yeah, we got one of those just to, I don't know. My wife is good at having that stuff. It's a lifesaver. You know, like for me, I was feeling short of breath all the time and I did not want to go to the hospital because the hospital was a, you know, crisis scene. So you know, this allowed me to have the information to, to be okay by staying. And, yeah. um, yeah. And then it went away. Thank God. It's, it's almost, you can't almost can't believe that something that cheap, it can be that effective <laughs> at monitoring. You know what I mean? Like, like yeah. you could just buy this thing for 20 bucks and it can monitor your, your lifeline basically. If you know, so true. And especially for someone who's like, I'm like pretty nerdy and I've done a lot of works with respiration and heartbeats. So the idea that, you know, it comes around and it potentially saves my life is, is, is great. Yeah, definitely. Well, um, so are you back and functioning? Are is your studio still on hold? Yeah. So here in Montreal, I'm in Canada. Um, the situation is not great. Uh, we are the epicenter of Canada. It's getting a little bit better. I have a studio with 15 people and four of them are back. These are the people who do more physical, more fabricating uh, things. So they really need to be at, a, at the shop. Um, whereas the ones who are programmers or researchers, they're all still at home. Yeah. And the idea is uh, gradually we'll reintroduce them um, to be honest, the programmers are much more efficient at home than in a noisy environment with a lot of, of uh, interruptions. So right. maybe, maybe we will sort of migrate toward that kind of hybrid world of, of half material and half virtual. 
it seems like something that's been, you know, it's going to come out of this is, you know, the, so many people were running ragged, going here and there, commuting every day when they don't necessarily need to. You know what I mean? It's, it seems like this is going to build in some remote qualities to, you know, our sort of day to day, which would probably be good for the carbon footprint of the world, and, you know, and for mm-hmm, people's mm-hmm. psyches and mental health too, to not be, you know, running themselves in the ground all the time. There's a lot of stuff that you can do without the commute. And I think for so long we just did it because that was what you did. And now that people realize like, oh, you can be effective and maybe even a little more effective in some aspects just online, you know. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and and the same with travel, right? Like a lot of the meetings that I've been having normally would have, you know, depended on me being there present. Um, on the other hand, it's true that we have a lot of my team has kids. Uh, yeah. I have three kids at home and they're very active and they need a lot of space and a lot of attention. So, I mean, I feel for the parents who have to sort of negotiate that as well. Um, I, I also feel like in my studio, I have a, a number of people who are not from Montreal, who have yeah. come from abroad, like I have Americans and Germans and so on. And they're in a foreign country without their normal support, and they're all alone in their apartment. And for people like them, it's so important to go back to the studio where they had a social connection. So I think it, it yeah, it depends on, on, on your own um, situation. We are very privileged here in Canada, um, and um, and I, you know, I, I honestly I can't wait to get back to the studio uh, yeah. myself. What's well, funny know, being at home has been yeah. And just thinking about your work of being so tied to technology, and a lot of it operates in a realm where you could potentially you think about like work like the stuff I do that's animation like I have a show in Tokyo that's opening up on the first a group show and it's there's two animations in it and I just sent the files <laughs> you know nice. so there's an element of technology that facilitates you know the movement of work without this physical um, you know heaviness to it but so much of your work does operate in that realm too sculpturally and installation wise you know it's kind of you float between those two worlds in a way, right? I would imagine some ideas maybe could be, you know, transmuted into this sort of digital realm in a way. Or do you feel like the physicality is always, you know, first and foremost? Yeah, I mean, for me, physicality is really important. Um, I think that I came more from performing arts and visual arts. So this idea of being together, um, to being present, to embody virtuality was an early sort of concern of mine. So most of my work that was, for example, online connected to physical manifestations. So the typical thing is you'd go online, you'd design a light sculpture, but then that would get realized in actual city, right? Um, And so I was interested in that, still interested in, in, in embodying um, the virtual and, and materializing all of these things. Um, but now with COVID, my studio for the past uh, couple months has been working on online only um, performances and, and installations. So I am exploring this capability to transmit the art, which is what you're saying, right? Like it's, it is a new category of possibility that you can just 
transmit your work <laughs> and yeah. that it can have a, a viral life, you know. Um, so there's there's a lot of interest in that. But ultimately, for me, the 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 key thing is is that presence, and I work with with ideas of of um, presence and absence, and sometimes telepresence forms part of it. But in the end, I find that the solitary, confined, um, sort of framed experience of um, of telecommunications, for example, very limiting. I am. Uh, constantly in Zooms and in Slack meetings and in chats and so on. And I'm very frustrated about it because I think that uh, so much nuance goes away. Our body is not involved. Um, the, the the notion of touch and haptics is, is for me, really, really important. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I have a feeling that when this is over, when we have a vaccine... Um, there is going to be a yearning back for that party-like, uh, carnivalesque uh, desire to be next to each other, sharing pheromones and yeah. and and kissing strangers. Yeah, when uh, prohibition was lifted in the U.S., I'm sure people went out and got, you know rip roar and drunk together and speak, you know <laughs> i yeah. think it's it's i mean people are doing it now they're going rogue and going out to the beaches and like they're doing things that are just you know like some people i'm I'm not that person i don't necessarily need to be around people i mean a lot of artists i think are okay being alone or working by themselves or, yeah you know but some people you could tell they're just they're losing it and they're they're saying that you know f it i'm just going out and gonna run on a beach and like hug people or you know they, yeah they can't those take people it. those people but those people are not i don't i don't know like i think there there is a moment where you look at the the people um breaking those rules and they're just just doing it also out of a spite against science and about right. uh control and so on and and i think that that's ridiculous you know like when you look at the front lines and you understand the level of 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 crisis that we're under. You gotta just you know grow up, right. <laughs> grow up and be and be in your room and not get out. And if you get out, you use a mask. And um, I, I, it's interesting to me that now one one of the things that we are understanding, which is leveling the curve. I think that this term, this concept of leveling the curve, is so. Um, Important because now people understand what it is, and it is exactly what we'll need. For example, with climate change, right? Like we didn't know how we could stop this extinction event from continuing, and now we know that the mechanisms that are helping us put COVID in under control to an extent is exactly what we'll need for climate change. So, as somebody who is a little bit panicked over. Um, the decimation of our environment. Um, there is a, a lesson there from COVID in that um, there is the possibility for us to coordinate and become solidary and and try to um, you know understand the science, back the science. Right. I think yeah. that that's a, it's a really important thing to to stand for right now. It just requires like willing participants, and there's so many people who just don't. I know as intelligent as we can be as, as a species, they just don't want to do it, you know, or it's, it's like we have a habit of just waiting until it really hits the fan. You know, you wait until the pipe bursts to go put a new pipe in or something. 
Yeah. You know, but the pipe burst a while back, right? Like, totally. What's yeah. interesting is like it, 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 there's this new term which I really like as Brocus, Brazil, mm-hmm. Russia, UK, and the US. Right? These are the countries that have the most deaths, the most contagion, the most everything. Like the 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 biggest impact of COVID has been on these Brocus nations, and there it's not a coincidence that they are all ruled by a mob government which does not price or concern themselves with the health of their citizens. They're interested in the economics and in make richer people richer, rich people richer. Um, so I, I have a feeling that except for them, most other people, or, and by people I mean governments, are following the science and they're, they're careful and they're thoughtful about this. Um, yeah. So... So I think that when we think, well, it's, it's human nature to go out and defy these rules, I don't think so. I think that we're seeing examples of how it can be done right. I was reading yesterday that Jacinda uh, Arden in, in New Zealand have, was just celebrating the fifth day of nobody in hospital due to COVID. And I, I think Jacinda is like the perfect person to idolize like project i don't ever want to meet this woman because she's so important in my imaginary that things can actually be done don't properly and the priorities yeah exactly it's <laughs> like i don't want to meet her because she's perfect right now um but you know it's happened to me so many times um i'm old so i for example remember when Tony Blair first came to power, right, I was like, oh, my God, this guy's great. Yeah. Can you believe after Thatcherism we're going to get this young, you know, enthusiastic socialist? And then we saw what happened, right? It was like a complete, <laughs> distro- you know, your heroes just, you know, uh, disappoint you over and over. Yeah, definitely. But I Jacinda, think- for now, she's my, she's my hero. <laughs> right. The, uh, the Bruckus thing, the interesting as, you know, living in the U.S. and being in New York for over 20 years um and it's so bad in new york and i think it's it's just the one thing that separates the u.s a little bit from the other places on that list is just it's just a place filled with people from other places especially like somewhere like new york other cultures and what makes it work is people just don't it's almost like you just don't listen to the other it's like everyone's just going out for theirs and they all kind of live together but no one really listens to other people or really cares about what they're doing. It's the, and the U.S. is kind of built on that idea of like you can step on other people to make your like you can make it. It's all about you, yeah. you, you, you know. And my extended family, you know, we uh, is from Japan, and like thinking about the way Japan uh, works and how people are there. Everyone's collective. It's about the society and the people. So in a time like this, it's. there's so much better controlling because everyone will wear a mask like everyone will sort of listen and try to help out where here it's just like we pride ourselves on not listening to anyone else and we're just going to do what we want to do and that's what's made us who we are so it's like this personality disorder of the country where they can't when they really need to pull together is this frontier frontiersman mentality of like mavericks and and um, vigilante, you know, sort of every hero is like in Hollywood, not everyone, but all of them, most of them are like not listening. Everybody says, don't do that. And it's like, but he did it no matter what. And then right. he triumphed at the end. Um, yeah, but I actually like that about the United States because I think that in my world, the United States functions as 
um, you know, a place for experimentation. And um, I think that this, those societal norms and and so on can also get very problematic, and especially when they're um, instrumented in government. Um, I lived in Spain uh, just after Franco died, and that is not something you want to see, right? right? Everybody kind of uniformed and and this sense of of uh, mistrust over what the government may be um, hearing. So I have a feeling that that what we need is. Basically, what we need is just the U.S. Um, t- without Trump. That's that's all we need. Like right now, the the people who are in power do not represent the massive uh, traditions and practices and checks and balances that exist. And one of the things that I think about often is we're falling for this game of of distraction and of adversarial narratives. Um, We have mob rulers, right? Um, You have them, Brazil has them, Mexico has them, Russia has them. And these mob rulers are empowered by chaos. And I think that often even my friends who are um, very thoughtful intellectuals, they're like, well, we've got to burn it all down. It's like, no, we don't have to burn it all down. Um, that's exactly what they want. They want that chaos because it produces a power vacuum they will take over. And so we have to double down on voting and on checks and balances and on due process and on um, supporting the independence of institutions and so on. Um, But, you know, having said that, looking at what happened in Minneapolis, you, you completely understand and empathize with the people who are sick of it, who are like, yeah, let's burn this shit down because it's the only way to get noticed in a problem that is systemic and that is supported from the very top of government. So I get that part. Um, I just think that the durable change is not going to come out of burning things down. I think the durable change is going to come out of engaging on a daily basis with a process which a lot of people are tired of, but we... We, I believe that democracy um, has a place and, uh, and unfortunately the United States has become completely non-democratic. Your voting system is not to be trusted. Um, already the election of Trump was fraudulent and, and, uh, and what's about to happen in 2020 may be even worse, right? Because, yeah. you know, Trump is preparing for it. He's seeding all of the mistrust that he can um, because we're in front of an oligarch mob um, sort of active measure, which, you know, just like Erdogan destroyed a secular system in Turkey and then became empowered, um, will lead us to what people are calling disaster capitalism. I am so sorry, Brian. I don't know why I'm saying all this stuff. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> I just so, I'm so obsessed with the current situation that I... I I, yeah, know, it's important. Talk. I mean, it's, it's what's <laughs> driving a lot of what's happening. You know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, been but I, I'm sorry though. It's like, it's also something that everybody knows, you know? So I, I, I don't know why I'm just repeating, preaching to the converted, but. Well, let's talk about something. Uh, let's talk about something people don't know. And that's like how your childhood was growing <laughs> up in Mexico. Did you, were you, I would imagine that you were the kind of kid who was like, uh, I mean, judging by the, what you do is like tinker, like take a part of radio or like play with integrated circuits. Or I mean, was that kind of what you were doing? 
so my story is, is, is strange. My parents were nightclub owners. And us nightclub owners, they were very absent, right? So they were either sleeping or they're away. And um, I grew up with, you know, they were pioneers of um, drag queen shows in Mexico, which at the time was very homophobic, right. had a massive salsa club. And I remember being in that scene. So it was, that was one side. And then the other side is my grandfather he had a, a lab, basically, like an experimentation um, set up in his garage. He was, um, he was a strange guy. He invented uh, Bakelite plastic, for example. Oh, really? um, yeah, he invented it, except that he invented it 45 years after it had already been invented. <laughs> so it's this kind of very Mexican story of like, he invented all these things, but he never went anywhere. But I was always fascinated by his lab. Um, and I would spend time uh, with them because my parents um, sort of uh, would leave us with our grandparents for a while. And, um, and that, you, you know, just sort of whet my appetite for experiments and for chemistry. And I, in fact, went to university and studied a chemistry degree because of, of this thing. And also because I needed a plan. My parents wanted me to be a barman and be at the club. Um, I said, no, I'll, I'll, I'll be making mixtures, but not at the bar. That's like the exact um, opposite of the normal thing where it's like, you know, <laughs> go off and be, you know, a lawyer or a doctor. And like, they're like, no, own a nightclub or like run a club or be a bartender. You're like, no, I'm yeah, going to study exactly. chemistry. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And it's also so funny because it's kind of like you cannot like shock your parents, right? Like they were, they were friends with Alejandro Jodorowsky, which is this weird Chilean filmmaker that lives in Paris that does this incredible stuff. Um, they were friends with um, Celia Cruz. I mean, it was it was really exciting. Um, I hated salsa music all my life. I hated it because to me, salsa music was my parents. Then I moved to Canada, and now I can't get enough salsa music because <laughs> <laughs> Canada really needs this kind of tropical feel. Um, yeah. But in all seriousness, I think that that one of the things that happened in my life is my parents, like, uh, they got divorced. My, ma my mom married, like, five times, um, and that's just the marriages. She had a lot of different sort of situations. My dad married three times. They were very wild. And though I used to joke about how great that is, now I'm like in psychotherapy, you know, it's like, <laughs> there is like these parents, uh, I, I remember Marina Bramovic once said that the more screwed up your parents, the better artist you are. And when I met her, I'm like, okay, let's go, you know, toe to toe, like what, what was your situation? <laughs> and, uh, and uh, I think she won, she, she was pretty screwed up, but um but yeah, I mean, so the the background was that, and then at 13, I moved to Spain. So I was in Mexico until 13. My mom married a Spaniard and moved to Spain. And uh, like I said, that was right after Franco. So it Where was at a very... Where in Spain? Madrid? Uh, in Madrid, yeah. Yeah. In Madrid. And, um, and so I basically stayed there for about four years, five years, and then finally moved to Canada to study at university. And... Um, and in a way, get away from my mom and my dad, you know, go to somewhere else um, where I could just explore by myself. And um, in chemistry, um, throughout the university, I loved it. I still love science, but 
if you want to be creative in chemistry, you got to get like a doctorate and a postdoc and then you get your lab. Um, at my level, which is just a bachelor's, um, you just work at a lab to like optimize, you know, like glue. That's what I worked on for like six months. Yeah. Uh, I didn't want to optimize glue. So my friends were all writers and artists and choreographers. And I said, well, I want to join these people. And that's how I started with the arts is bad company. Did you, I mean, were there any sort of people who took that path that you could feel like, oh, well, this person did start it out in this area or did you have to totally go rogue? Yeah, I think I went rogue. Like, I mean, what happened is, is I just, I finished my degree because that was important to me and I, I enjoyed it. But um, my friends were doing performance art and I was like, fuck, I want to be a part of that. And because I had no talent, like I couldn't sing, I couldn't play music, I couldn't dance, I kind of became the director. I would kind of pull myself out. And all of the experimentation that we were doing at the time were integrated media performances. And at the time I had learned to program so I could program a little bit. Um, like one of the very first things that I did is I programmed an eye, a human eye projected onto a big screen who will follow and the performer. So as a performer walked around, she would dance and this eye followed her. And if you'd get close to the eye, you could actually grab the eyelid and close it. Um, and while that was successful, it was only after the performance would end that we'd invite the public to try the virtual environment. And when they did, when the eye followed them, we realized that that was very successful because if you see it on a stage, you just go, oh, well, this is well rehearsed. You know, it's like a video and she's just moving to wherever the eye is going. But it's the opposite. And when you're there, when you try it, you realize the eye is following you and a whole bunch of new interpretations come in. So that's when I decided these kinds of stage design modules can actually be artworks in and in themselves right. with the public being the actor. And what you're kind of saying is that you're you're doing what your parents did in a way. <laughs> you became yeah. A, you're running the nightclub. You're running yeah, the studio. Exactly. You're a director. Yeah. You know, you're not you're not necessarily always on stage playing the congas to the song. But, That's right. But you're there. You're sort of running the process in a way. So, so for sure. And often I say that a good artwork is like a good party. So you're. You need to be, ha, get the drinks and the good music and the ambiance and, and the lights are bright, but it is the public, it is the people that make the party. Yeah. So you set up the platform, but you depend on the participation of the general public for it to actually become something uh, that has merit. So in that sense, yeah, I've, I think that my parents' desire for creating these out-of-control environments um, is something that I'm very attracted to. And, and I think that art needs to be out of control. Yeah. But, so here's the next question. I mean, you, art exists in this, I mean, most of the time, for the most part, in a very kind of canonized, rigid, sort of, you know, programmatic way of showing work most of the time, you know, in this kind of a stiff environment. It's not the nightclub environment, you know, where anything goes and let's have fun. So was that difficult? I mean, was it hard to start to show the work and to figure out that puzzle piece of how to connect with, you know, audiences in different ways and different platforms? Or did it just sort of 
happen? Well, no. I mean, the way it happened is, is I mean, I was in media art, and media art has its own festivals and its own kind of presentation platforms, and it's very performing arts-based. So I've always thought that media art was misunderstood. It was on, It's not visual art, right? It's not like a loop that comes back. It's not like an artwork that has a presence and then it remains over time. It's something that happens as an event. So most of my early work for the first, say, 10 or 15 years, it was all performance-based. And it would take place at festivals like Ars Electronica or at V2 or ZKM or ICC. So this is a network of media art establishments where people could come and experiment with an intersection of technology with mostly performing arts. Um, And what's interesting about those things is that the economics of it were based not on the sale of objects, but exactly like in theater. You would go and do a performance and get paid for that, but then the work would kind of disappear. And so in this this period of my life, I actually really um, went against the idea of collections and of galleries. I used to say that... um, the art market was necrophiliac and vampiric and um, and that I was not interested in in the will to power and this commodification and I, oh my god you should hear me I was saying things like uh, what was I saying I was saying uh, well that it was all speculation and pyramid schemes and so on and now while I still think some of that is true um, <laughs> what happened is about uh, 15 years ago I started to get interest from commercial galleries. And what ensued was interesting because as I started working with galleries, I started asking the questions that, for example, museums have about the conservation of these artworks. How can we make this experience be conserved over time? And I used to be so against conservation. And now, you know, I changed my tune, of course, as soon as I saw that the art market could support uh, about half of my activities now are supported by commercial galleries. Um, I, I, I changed my tune. Um, I was watching the, the Beastie Boys documentary yesterday, and there's this line where they're saying, well, aren't you a hypocrite? And the guy says, well... I'd rather be an, a hypocrite than the same, same person all my life or something like that. And I like that. I mean, I think I changed my mind. You know, I think here's the deal. I think that in the art world, there's some people, some collectors who um, will take risks with you and they're eccentric and they do have a vision. And some of this money, which they direct to my studio, is is used in a way that that allows my studio to maintain a certain independence. Because one thing we don't do at the studio is is sort of corporate commissions. Like I'm super proud um, to not have accepted a BMW show or a Samsung show or Nestle wanted us to do this, you know, big installation in their flagship store in Soho. I, I said no, because I think that the moment that you work for a company like that, you betray the trust of the public that you're wanting to engage. So, so the question of, well, then how, how do you fund your work? Um, in part, the answer is age old, right? Like you try and find sponsors, supporters, 
um, philanthropy, and then public money as well. So that's that's how we're doing it. But the 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 story of me joining galleries did change my work. Um, I, for example, I'm super interested in conservation now. Yeah. Um, I really, I guess, because I'm older. I'm very careful and, and, and we think a lot about how, how to ensure that if someone acquires a work of ours that we can um, empower the collector or the collection to be able to keep that project, you know, um, performing over time. Yeah. Yeah, that is a big question. It's, you know, and, and it's with technology. I mean, a certain aspect of my work, it's very minimal, but, you know, in doing animations, I remember the first time I did it, and selling it, you know, having it in a gallery and it was something that people could buy. It was like on a small monitor and it was hooked up to a DVD player. You know what I mean? And like these things break yeah. down, like, you know what I mean? And that uh, the idea of conservation was just like, okay, what happens when this technology doesn't work after a couple of years? <laughs> and I That's imagine right. like, and your ballpark, I mean that it must be, you know, a hundredfold of more of an issue of like, okay, what happens with this stuff whenever, you know, it's, it's, a lot of it's engineered to be obsolete. I mean, I, you're probably making your own things, but still, like, you know, stuff fades over time. And how to For deal sure. with that? And so we, I wrote this manifesto or this document called uh, Best Practices for Media Art Conservation, but from an artist's perspective. Because yeah. museums have a whole forensic team trying to deal with this. But the most important contribution, I think, to to conservation debate in my from my perspective, is the idea of monetizing it. When I speak to my friends who are also media artists and I say, hey, are you thinking about conservation? They're all like, dude, I'm trying to survive here. I'm like only obsessed with the next thing I'm making. I don't want to look back at what happened 10 years ago. And I'm like that too, right? But as you just said, I have like, I don't know, 400 hard drives uh, right now performing stuff in different locations, which are time bombs. And I know that any minute that that fails, I'm going to get a call. And it used to mortify me that now all of what we do is to support the older work. And so what I did is in this document, uh, the best practices, I talk about the artist being able to monetize the support. So I learned that if you have a Nam Junpaik and you bring in like a consultant, they'll charge you like $3,000 a day. And then I thought, well, what if this could actually be an income stream for the studio? So what we do is when, you, when we sell a work to a collector, we say, well, you're buying a fountain. In other words, you're buying a capital investment, but you need to understand that the valves rust and you need to chlorinate the water and there's some maintenance. So when you compare it to a fountain, the collector relaxes into understanding that the piece comes with some maintenance. And then you give the collector two options. One of them is, Here's all the source code, all the schematic diagrams, all the parts list, everything for you or your team to be able to conserve this uh, into the future. Or you could hire us to, you know, sort of update it and we'll charge you just daily engineering fees, which is like, I think it's $700 a day, which is substantial for us, right? So now we have noticed that 96% of our collectors would rather us deal with the potential uh, maintenance or migration of the work into new platforms than do it with like a consultant. And that is an income stream that then helps me keep in my studio personnel who are qualified to do it. So it sounds 
it sounds super crass, <laughs> but it actually has helped some of my colleagues say, oh, shit, I want to get in on that, right? right. Because the collector doesn't want a situation where they've invested this money and after a year, the screen doesn't turn on, right? They want something that will be conserved over time. And so if the studio can think about that, and, and I say the studio, not the gallery, I mean, you and I were in the same gallery at, at Honcho Venison. Yeah. And then one day that gallery disappears. And now where does the collector go, right? Like you trained a really good gallery person that you really admire and respect, but he's no longer employed by the gallery and he's no longer available to help. So in the end, you need to take it on yourself until the works are with museums. And in museums... You just need to establish a really good relationship with the conservators there. Uh, bless their soul. They don't have enough power and they need to be helped as much as we possibly can as artists because there's a barrage of media arriving in contemporary art museums and the museums are not prepared for how to take care of these pieces. So we must help the conservators of media art. Yeah, you talk about two different speeds. I mean, the speed of that kind of work and the speed of like museum speed is like... <laughs> That's like first exactly. and 20th gear, you know, they are exactly. so slow with everything and, and just the art world in general, I think when it comes to technology, I'm always baffled. And, you know, you were talking about that kind of like the digital art realm and like the circuits of like, you know, the, the EA or like the, uh, like I-beam or places like that, you know, places that deal with sort of digital media and, and there's like, a, it's almost like a subculture, you know, and, and a lot of people don't even know that exists in the art world. They just, they only think of like the big galleries and, you know, analog stuff, but the art world just seems so slow when it comes to technology. Like I remember, yeah. you know, the first gallery that I showed at and I talking to the dealer and saying like, look, you need to get a website. And they're like, website, There's, we don't need that. You know, it's just kind of like years. It must have been like a year or two later. They're like, oh, yeah, I think we need this website thing. You know, this is just so slow. Like Instagram, we don't need that. And then, you know, it's like, oh, we better but do a viewing room right now. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Put a bunch of JPEGs. Right. Uh, but, you know, I think, I think it's interesting because the galleries, um, on the other hand, you could, if you take the, the bigger view, if you look at the technology of photography, for example, that took a hundred years to be considered yeah. into the established fine arts. So media art is finally, um, you know, it's inevitable, right? If I, I always say that I work with technology, not because it's new, I hate the term new media, or because it's original, that's bullshit. It's because it's inevitable, because all of our communications, our economics, our politics um, are transacted through media. So to speak about ourselves today is really to explore the, the platforms in where we spend our life, which is this interconnectivity, globalization, um, you know, the concentration of languages into a few mainstream ones, the reduction of... Anyway, you know, all of that. So yeah. the, question, the question that I have is that I say is that often like media is what's natural. It's what's normal. And uh, I've seen, for example, like for example, as somebody that I admire greatly, uh, Claire Bishop. So I, 99% of what she writes, I think is, is incredible. And then one day she put out this article. It was a while back, but 
where she's talking about technology in the arts, but she literally in one phrase says, well, we can't really consider the ghetto of the I-beams and the ICCs and the ZKMs because they are, they're their own thing. You know, um, let's only consider the artists like Jenny Holzer or Tony Orsler or people who have approached technology inside of the contemporary art realm. And I find that disingenuous and I find that sad because as a gatekeeper of what I find critically important, um, there was this desire to keep that whole practice ghettoized. Having said that, fast forward like five years or 10 years, I think now I can't think of a single museum that isn't collecting media art. Um, My first piece in a big museum was in 2006. It was at MoMA. They bought a piece of mine called 33 Questions Per Minute. And it sounds ridiculous, Brian, but after MoMA acquired that work, all of a sudden, all these other museums said, oh, yeah, okay, so we can do that too. We can we can collect this kind of work. So the legitimation of this work in the established um, gatekeeping environment is 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 happening already. Yeah. Um, but it's but it is slow. Um, but now I don't think there's especially after COVID, right? Like now, you're seeing every single museum scrambling for digital content that can keep the relationship to their viewership alive. Um, you know, uh, at a time when museums are closed. Yeah, you've got like 60-year-old people figuring out Zoom, you know? They're like, I guess we have to. Because I feel like a lot of that, it's not that curators or, you know, institutions felt like technology wasn't an integral part of our society or something that's subject matter-wise, you know, important. Because, I mean, there's so many artists who deal with it in 2D ways, like in painting or in, you know, sculpture, that is celebrated and I think it's just laziness of not wanting to have to figure out this new thing that they don't understand do you know what I mean like that seems like a pain in the ass to like try to figure out how to put these 100 monitors into our collection you know it's just pass you know that painting is so easy I love that you said that because because I I often say that and I just feel a little bit like self-conscious about it I remember one time in in the Havana Biennial in 2001, right? It's the first time that I'm showing at a biennial. And there is art there because the curators that year thought that electronic art was a thing. And so I was in there. You had work from El Salvador, from Colombia, from Dominican Republic, which was, if not electronic, it was electric, right? Uh, It was things that with motors and and screens and so on and so forth. And I remember the um, the day that Harold Seaman and all these big curators came, there was a power outage. And it was just so devastating because all the, what I felt was really interesting art required this electricity. And in discussion, um, I was bringing this up and Harold Seaman said, well, you know, I don't like this media works because with a painter, I can walk into a studio and within two minutes know if this is a contribution or not. With a media artist, you need to go through the world or understand the relationships or or <laughs> see the relationship. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You're like the most important curator of the 20th century and this is what you come down to and and the answer is yeah there's a there's a reticence to go into 
into a world that has a set of rules that are um, different and time-consuming to explore. Um, but of course, that will change also generationally, right? Yeah, like totally. now I'm thinking about, you know, curators, like I'm working now with uh, Tina Rivers-Ryan, who, who I first met when she was at the Met. She's now at the Albright Knox. And so the idea that this young curator is empowered means we don't have to teach her anything. She teaches us, you know, how how this is contextualized in a broader art historical sense. So that's a way to do it that I think is, is astute, is if you think of media art as an extension of Solowitz art of instructions or as an extension of, of um, Goldstein's performances or as, um, you know, there, there's so many different types of traditions of immaterial work that we can turn around and say, yeah, this is within those traditions, as opposed to pretending that this is something new, which is, I think, understandably what people reject, right? Yeah. So much of media art is gratuitous, you know, forks with eyes that get animated and trip. I mean, we need to, you know, we need to speak to a broader sense of, of, of meaning beyond the novelty of the gadgetry and consumption of, of virtuality. Totally. I feel like, you know, artists like yourself, you sort of carve a, a new path in a way because your work is so ingrained in that kind of, in the media. And it's really important because it creates, it elicits responses and emotions out of something that is typically uh, seen by a lot of people as, as more of a functional day-to-day sort of technology you know what i mean so it's almost yeah. like poeticizing something that is seen to be you know programmatic in a way yeah you know like i, I like the word per, i like the word perversion so i wrote in in 95 i wrote a text called perverting technological correctness so even in the 90s i was noting people were talking about well how much resolution does your monitor have like who the fuck cares you know yeah. is like this technological correctness does not equate to you know quality um and so the perversion of the of the um, sort of technologies of control of surveillance of metrics the perversions of technology to monetize communication is what the artist can do is disturb those patterns and create alternatives that are more out of control, that are more about self-representation. Um, I have a feeling that, um, that a, lot of, a lot of artists have been uh, ignored by history um, that have been pioneers in this. And, uh, and I find it uh, unacceptable, you know, like uh, a typical example is, um, although she's now quite famous again, thank God, um, is uh, Marta Minujin. So here's, here's something that not many people knew until recently is before Namjoon Pike's port pack or before Bruce Nauman had cameras or Julius Scher surveillance, there was this woman in Argentina who did a performance in 1965 with live cameras tracking the public and mixing them with live TV. And this is important to me for two reasons. One is because the pioneer of this kind of live CCTV or video, live video installation is an Argentinian woman. So 
I love that, yeah, we have Frida Kahlo, that's great, but here's this other nerdy lady who is doing this pioneering work. So break the stereotypes of what both being Latin American is and, and you know, the contribution of women in contemporary art. But the second reason why I love it is because this is over 50 years ago, yeah. right? So 50 years ago, this happened. So how can we keep on talking about this stuff as new is very, very strange to me. Um, this is part of traditions of experimentation that have gone on for decades. And I think that it's really important for museums to revise those stories, you know, of artists like her, um, so that then the people who are creating now can see themselves on the in relation to yeah. those earlier experiments. Well, at least it's happening, I mean, not enough, but at least in some aspects it's happening now, like you know, 30 or 40 years ago, you feel like that just wouldn't happen. You know what I mean? Like the, uh, the Hilma off Klimt show, which I've been talking about pioneering work and the Legia Clark show at MoMA, which I thought was just one of my favorite shows seeing that, you know, there's, there's stuff that's being mined that happened. I feel like music to me is always a little ahead of the game and you know, that happens in music, right? So, you know, people would hear, you know, Elvis and then dig back from there or something, you know what I mean? Or hear, (laughs) you know, whatever it is like disco and then go back into, you know, funk jazz and all that stuff. And, uh, I feel the same thing with, uh, with digital media, you know, remember when electronic music first started happening. I mean, I was, you know, young enough to see a lot. I mean, not, I'm not talking craft work, but you know, some of the people who were performing live with like laptops and Nobukazu Takamura and like Marcus Mm -hmm. pop and people like that, you know, people didn't know what the hell that stuff was. Didn't (laughs) think it was real music you know, and and then slowly electronic music, or you know what we call electronic music back in the day, which I guess is IDM or something. Um, you know, now it's just in part of all pop music. Like people don't That's really right. talk about that anymore. And I think with art, it's going to get to that point. It's just right now, it's 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 harder for you know. It takes a little while to to catch up. So younger generations of curators who come up, or you know, people who are watching this stuff and looking at the work it won't feel foreign to them. So they'll say, yes, this is a viable mode of, you know, expressing ideas. That's not like this fringe way of like making something. Agreed. Agreed. Hopefully. And I, I, and I think you're right about the music. I mean, in terms of the history of music, um, all the pioneers of computing art are composers, right? I mean, uh, Stockhausen was, uh, he said something that I found really interesting is he said, he's the first composer to ever play all the instruments in all of his music. Because <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he would basically, you know, just synth everything up. And um, and there's always been a very close relationship between math and composition. So, so yeah, the the pioneers of, of electronic music, people like uh, Derbyshire, um, are, are people who, who need to be recovered. And then also in the bigger scheme of things as the real pioneers of, of computing culture because visual visually it didn't start happening until maybe 10 years later with people like Manfred Moore and, yeah. and Vera Molnar. Um, but I think, I think it's... Um, I, one of the things that I think is healthiest is not to talk about technology so that it's normalized, that an artwork is not there because of the novelty or because of what it can do but rather what is it saying and how is it provoking 
at change and how does it dialogue with this other painting or how does it dialogue with this particular research or politics. So I find that most artists that are working with technology that I'm attracted to are really not ever talking about technology. You know, they're talking about situations of control or, uh, you know, this kind of thing. Um, And I think that I call that normalization. It's just nobody goes to a photo show because there's photos in it, you know? (laughs) Well, it just takes time to get normalized. It takes time. That's the, it. When it when it when the te- when quote unquote the technology or when whatever your whatever medium you're using becomes intuitive, or it, it separates itself out from like this thing that you're unfamiliar with, then it just you know like a, a twenty year old just looking at our kids like my my you know how <coughs> adept they are at working with technology it's almost like you know it's incredible to see you know what i mean yeah and then when i yeah. help my parents out with like logging into their email or whatever it is you know <laughs> that gap is so huge just because you know with the kids it's like intuitive they're used to it they it's their language in a way you know and when it becomes part of your language you don't always talk about why you're saying it it just becomes part of that language i particularly right. i love working in between because you know I, I a lot of people see me as a painter and that's what i do but and a lot of people have know my animations and and that were or interested in that and i kind of like floating in between i think it's important to have people who do work between the lines because that can open the audience to one side and the other you know what i mean and you, and you're and you're perfectly positioned to make a commentary on both worlds because your generation is exactly that boundary between your parents who didn't have this um, you know sort of technology wave well, well they had different technologies obviously but I'm talking about electronic technology um, or computing technology and then your kids so you you are right right in the passage between those two generations. So the fact that you work on both of those sort of fields means that you're a weird translator, you know, and your work is particularly uh, important. Because the other thing about what happens is when you're fully digital, when you're, you know, born digital, um, there is a sense of distance and criticality that must be maintained about these systems not being neutral and not being necessarily good. Um, And I think that, you know, well, our generation or or the people who are in between are critical of of the um, adoption of this technology uncritically. And so I think that that's, that's, um, you know, you and I remember not having internet. Yeah. And I think that that's a really important thing. We lived without it. We live with it. Whereas our kids won't know what it was like to not have all of the information at their fingertips. Right. You know, one of my favorite creative people of all time is Herbie Hancock. And I think he was that perfect bridge of complete analog you know, playing in the early days with Miles Davis and then like working through like electronic organs and, you know, synthesizers. And then he went full, you know, he kind of like was fortunate enough. I mean, he was incredibly talented. And then he was, he had the gene that let him want to use this new equipment without feeling like, well, this is going to sully jazz, like the tradition of jazz music and pushing it into this whole new direction. And it's, it's almost like, you just have to be lucky to be there at a certain time. You know what I mean? To, to yeah. sort of bridge those two gaps, you know? I mean, I was in my first year of college when my roommate was like, hey, we, you got to come to this computer lab on the other side of this campus. They have this thing called the internet. 
I think that's what the, you know. And he's like, you can see like pictures from NASA or like outer space or something. And I walked over there, and it was like dot matrix loading of like this page. It was taking like forty minutes, and I was like, this is not cool, you know. Little did I know, but but yeah, to be able to see both sides of that, I think, gives you kind of a you know a, a unique perspective. I think, especially with the sort of the singularity coming and things go happening so rapidly, you know what I mean? That's a pretty, you're like, we're right on that curve, you know? Agreed. And, and we're in that curve. And in my opinion, we are entering the curve without the critical tools to address it because, um, you know, people tend to think of say AI, right. And machine learning as some kind of solution, but as the work of people like Kate Crawford shows, these are completely biased systems that are literally embodying our prejudices. So, you know, there is this kind of, especially with COVID right now, like we're, you know, connected through Zoom right now, which famously has a number of data leaks and we don't really control how this traffic is flowed and how we're being calculated. The reality is that we're going into a society of metrics that there's no rewinding from from that. And I'm not like a super privacy rights activist, but I do understand that things like freedom of speech are, uh, are important. Things like being able to visualize um, who, ha- who is eavesdropping in your call um, and control the, the watch the watchers, as Daniel Garcia Andujar says, you know, like how, how, what are the, what's the toolkit that we have to deal with the fact that we're going to have the first trillionaire. You know, what's a toolkit with thinking of Google as a, a force of good as opposed to a company that has these mob connections and which have immense power to control our voting patterns, the same as Facebook, right, or the same as Twitter. So I think that as, as a general public, we don't have those tools. I mean, I think we, we have to work so much harder at a kind of grassroots protest. And even the idea of being quarantined, like we are right now, the idea of not being able to be on the streets, which is the way that change has always happened, you know, to be visible, to be out of control, is a fundamental part of the democratic process. And uh, what does a sit-in look like when you're in a digital world? And so hacking, that's one solution. Viruses, that's another one. Uh, memes, I mean, you talk about fake news. That's what artists are. We, we've been making fake news forever. <laughs> um, so if we're the specialists, we need to do this counter-terrorism attack where the governments are, not all governments, but, you know, the ones I'm talking about, um, you know, need, need to be confronted in a way that is empathic and in a way that is solidary, in a way that's equalizing, in a way that visualizes how abhorrent it is for Amazon not to pay their taxes, for example, or how their, you know, employees are not getting a fair wage or how, you know, any of the things that we all really all know. But I'm just noting that the speed is accelerating with COVID and uh, I'm, um, I'm, yeah, it depends who I'm speaking to. Brian, are you a, generally an optimist or a pessimist? I'm an optimist. Okay, so then I'll be the, the pessimist. I, I always, <laughs> I always, <laughs> I always take a, a the opposite view because it, it, it's it's one of those things, right? Where, um, 
that I, I think that optimism and pessimism are part of the same thing. It's just concern. It's yeah. like what you know, what is the concern over the future that we're leaving our kids? And I have this daughter, um, she's 16, and she's like an environmental activist, and she's so serious about it. And whenever I start like being too pessimistic and too, um, you know, just down, she just says, just don't be like that, just work. Let's, let's get on it. Let's, let's act. And I love that. You know, I think that the new generations... Um, have a fresh view into this disaster. And to them, this idea is like, well, oil, you know, supports so many millions of people. It's like, yeah, and it's killing uh, all of these other people. So therefore, we need a change. We need to think about what's next. I love that, Brian. I yeah, think that... I think it's great. Uh, I guess I'm a pessimist too, but I think overall I'm an optimist. But I was yeah. about to say, whenever you're talking about the Amazon thing, I was going to be like, well... Sorry to say, we're not going to take up that fight because everyone's too busy ordering shit off of Amazon. <laughs> That's right. That's and checking right. if it got showed up today or not and whatever. You know, everyone's yeah. just too... Bu- the irony that we're too busy in a quarantine. Like, I've gotten yeah. emails from people and I've sometimes I've said it to other people, man, I've been really busy. It's like, really? Just stuck at home? Just You know what I mean? <laughs> like, people just are distracted. You know, there's so much going on. Like, I remember the old days of... You know, when scamming used to be those advertisements for like high fidelity records that were like in in like quadraphonics or, you know, it was just total BS or like trying to sell you something. Yesterday, the air conditioning hasn't been working and I was uh, talking to my wife about it. And today on Instagram, I got an air conditioner portable unit ad. And, you know, I'm like, I, I get it. <laughs> it's that's happening. right. That's right. Being listened to. And, and I think, I, I, I mean, I think it, we could have... We could have, um, I, I, the, the most important thing is a sense of solidarity and a sense of, of we're in this together, right? Like nobody is outside of technology. That's a, a message that's important. Even if, if people are not uh, making artwork with computers or whatever, they still have a credit card that has like a profile of what they buy, when and where. Yeah. Um, they still have like their computer, their phone, and their TV that's listening to them and they're being tracked. Um, so to not be naive about about that is 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 an important um, thing to do. Um, and then also just to to mess it up, you know. Like I love all of the stuff that's coming out with uh, COVID um, masks that defeat face recognition. I I think that's wonderful, right? Like you you just kind of, you know, draw somebody else's face in your mask and now you've got this sort of additional protection. But the honest truth is though that's useful, it's only in voting governments which care about these civil issues that any change is actually going to be done for good. So I really... You know, I, my work is never moralizing or is never telling you what to do or think. But as a citizen, I do think that we all have this kind of responsibilities to keep our governments accountable on how these technologies are, are you know, can be misused and are being misused. Yeah, it's, it's such a, I feel like uh, there's such a duality. There's always a duality. I'm all about duality, like in my work and thinking <laughs> about life. And I love this idea of like, well, I don't want anyone listening in on me, but 
I hope everyone listens to this podcast and you know, like I, I don't want anyone running numbers on my, on what I'm buying or shopping for, but I want to look at my analytics and see how many likes I have or what, you know, like it's just, we as a society have this like conflicting, we want to be part of the game, but like, we don't want it. Like, you know, we want it on our rules and it's just, you know, we want to be able to afford stuff, but we don't want to send, you know, the labor off somewhere cheap where people are not getting paid. Well, like it's just a constant confliction and contradiction that I think is really, that's when people get kind of like, well, you know, screw it. What am I going to do? You know, that kind of like, yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I think that the, we can have it all is what I think. I think that if there's, there's the studies that if people actually paid their taxes and by people, I don't mean 99.9% of the people who pay their taxes, but I'm talking about these corporations or these trillionaires, if they actually were taxed at the level that rich people were taxed in the seventies, we could pay for healthcare for all, free education for all. We could wipe out poverty. We could have systems of of uh, addressing the climate crisis. So it just takes like a new generation of people to understand that greed is destroying the planet. And um, how we do it, I don't know. But but I do think that there's enough wealth and food and everything to do this right. It's just we need the politicians who are not sold out to these big interests to to be complicit. And I'm not saying I'm all pure. I work with corporations. Um, I have been sponsored by awful, awful companies. Um, but the the my my mantra is I will work with companies so long as they do exactly what I tell them. And um, for example, Amazon approached me through a curator to do a project. And, you know, I really would love to work with Amazon, but in a project, for example, that is about the reforestation of the real Amazon or about how this art project uh, visualizes working conditions, not just at Amazon warehouses, but elsewhere. I mean, there is a world where all of a sudden Bezos realizes that he shouldn't be in the race to get to Mars, but to try and, and and improve this world. And I think that if he ever were to think that way, artists would be a good starting point. Um, but until they decide to do something like that, I don't think it's prudent for artists to accept money from Amazon. Um, and, and by Amazon, I mean a lot of different corporations which are toxic. Yeah. Um, that's... I mean, yeah, it sounds pretentious, uh, but I do think that the artists need to be accountable for some of the decisions that they make. You know, I, I've done some bad things, uh, but the key is just to reduce how many bad things you, you, you do, you know, like that. can you sleep at night or do you only sell to oligarchs and, you know, personnel mine um, fabricators? Um, I love what happened at the Whitney, you know, with Candors. I, I love that. All of a sudden, the boards are saying, yeah, sorry, we're not going to take, you know, your safari land money. Yeah. Um, it, 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 that's how change happens. These people need to be unpopular and their power needs to be taken away. And to the point where, you know, they act in a more civic way. Totally. Well, I don't want to be your publicist, but it wouldn't hurt if you sold your yacht. I don't think that's a good look. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I know. And I, and I mean, I'm aware that all of what I'm saying comes from a privilege, right? Like I can speak like this because I'm in the safety of Canada, where I get government support, where um, there is there is a feeling that a lot of my colleagues are stuck in survival mode um, without, you know, public support, for example. And this you know, puts you at a really difficult crossroads. Sometimes you make pacts with the devil. And I am by no means moralizing about that. I think that sometimes change can come from within. Um, I have friends who work at Google. Um, but but um, yeah, I just think that we need to be aware that nothing is neutral, that these technologies are not magic. They work on the backs of the miners for their rare earth metals, the power that is required to keep these clouds going, uh, the Bitcoin and the blockchain, which is the most environmentally disastrous thing you could imagine. So just, yeah, use it because that's our reality. But, you know, don't believe that hype of it coming out of nowhere. It comes at a massive cost. And um, and cost reduction is is... It's an important political thing to think about. Well, I think also, Again, too, I, uh, I was just going to say, I think people, as your position changes and you have certain sort of privileges or advantages or whatever, it's important to keep that mindset because, like, the, the people who do rise at the top, if they never, if they forget that stuff or just drop it, then that's what is part of the problem. You know what I mean? Then it become these sort of, like, you know, never-ending, consuming, like, just separating themselves from everyone else on the planet so it, it really is important to have like everyone has about it's a duality everything to yeah. no like as an artist i heard some artists you know saying you know or, or who will say as far as the environment is concerned well i don't feel you know right making things the world has enough things in it because i'm just contributing to you know pollution or you know the fabricate or buying things in this way but it's like yeah well you know it's kind of like what you do if it's part of it like you have to understand that you're going to be making things but at the same time you try to like do that in the right way and send the right message and and you know there's a duality to everything but i think being conscious of it is step one that's right and also artists are really good at recycling stuff so you know i i mean a lot of the work i do is with common objects we're making right now like uh a big uh, printer which draws portraits with cigarette butts. And, uh, you know, I think about that stuff all the time. It's like, how, okay, so this, this is a cigarette butt problem. Like, how, how could I do something with this that will actually keep it um, visible? Um, so I also think that artists are this weird um, kind of two-world people, right? Because, so I have all of this, you know, democratic socialist ideals and, and, and questions and, and concerns. But at the same time, I'm in a fancy gallery and I meet extremely wealthy people. But I think that artists have always had that role, right? This kind of duality, if you will, where you where you are, you know, in touch with the philanthropists, with the powerful, and then and you have their ear. I was recently talking, well not recently, but about a year ago, I was talking to one of my collectors who I admire greatly and whose name is not going to be mentioned. And I was just, you know, challenging him on his support for Trump. Like he supports Trump. This is a very well-educated person who personally will tell you Trump is the most incompetent person he's ever met. 
and and he's completely you know out like 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 a danger and yet they support him because you know he happens to be working in in Wall Street and so it is it is the artists in my opinion who can just speak truth to power to an extent you know you can go and say yeah that's really uncool here are some facts that you need to consider i don't think i changed his mind um but i do think that that pressure that they can feel from because of course his colleagues are all supporting these you know sort of privatizations and 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 lack of control and checks and balances yeah. but i think that if the rest of us can push them to to you know make some change so hopefully that will have some effect i yeah i think it's it's what we can do you know yeah whatever anything like uh Khodorovsky says um we can't change the world but we need to start trying Right. And I love that. It's well, just the kids, like you were saying, hopefully the kids have that, you know, are getting that ingrained into them, you know. Yeah. I know but, it's in their you know what my do- Yeah, it's in their heart consciousness. But my daughter says something that's really great. It's like whenever she's like doing like a speech or something, people say, well, but you're young, you know, and it's up to you to whatever. It's like, no, you're in this planet too. And it's up to you too. And I love that she doesn't like leave us up the hook. You know, she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. This is not a young problem. This is an everybody who likes to breathe problem. And um, I I, I was reading... um, there's quite a bit of philosophers now who are talking about their atmosphere, right? Like Achille Membe and Bifo Bellardi and so on. And I'm super interested in their atmosphere as this site of globalization, of the kind of globalization that wants to kill us through COVID, but also the kind of memory of the accumulation of our toxic chemicals and, and emissions um, the atmosphere is like a really good metaphor to understand the problem we're in. You know that I made um, I made a, an asphyxiation machine, which uh, about three or four years ago, where you're invited to go into a room to breathe the air that has already been breathed by everybody before you. And this is a really disgusting artwork. I never thought people would go in, but they do. They line up to go into this hermetically sealed chamber to breathe this toxic recycled air and uh, there's warnings for contagion and panic and for asphyxiation and yet people go in and to me that work is kind of representative of of this um buckminster fuller idea of planet uh spaceship earth right yeah do you remember that movie where you have this immune deficient person inside of a bubble right a bubble boy or something bubble boy yeah like well, well, that's us. That's 7.7 billion people, Bubble Boy. Right. And we live in this tiny film of atmosphere that we share. And as we continue to burn everything, that's what we breathe. Right. And so the, the idea that, that we must popularize the fragility and the, and the complicity that we have in, in it is what that artwork is about. When you go in and you breathe that air, you're making it more toxic for future participants. And uh, I, I think that that message of participation as something that can kill you is what, um, what COVID, is really, COVID is really bringing to, to the fore. Definitely. I mean, it's like almost like flying. It's the same thing. Like you're going into a chamber. You know you're going in there and breathing that air. You could go down <laughs> at any moment, but people just do it anyways, you know? 
<laughs> for sure. <laughs> and we're not going to stop doing it. And we're not going to stop doing it. I mean, I, I can't wait to get back on a plane. Uh, it is it is one of those paradoxes, right? Like, I will be mindful. Um, uh, recently, I did a thing where I'm like now only flying if I can pay carbon offsets. It's nothing, but it's just a gesture, you know, it's just trying to add all these gestures into something that is meaningful. And then now, you know, a lot of telecommuting. But the truth is that my work is not for locality. People are talking about new localism. Um, and while that's fine, that's not that's not what uh, what my work can do. You know, my work needs to engage with I, with the process of globalization, because I think that that is the biggest threat that we have right now. I can't solve it, but I definitely want to to be in it. I want to address it um, with all the environmental implications that that has. So, God, I woke up really <laughs> belligerent. I am so sorry. No, I, no, I'm we- so... Ca- I, I'm super caffeinated, and I'm like, I don't know, I got like chip on my shoulder. I no, don't know that's what's great. Wrong with me today. I mean, we've we definitely established <laughs> it. The world is a complicated place this morning. <laughs> Which I really apologize. We should have done it about jazz. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, um, well, before we go, like, can I ask you real quick about the um, the SF MoMA show? Because wasn't that supposed to happen, and then is it delayed or what? What? Right. Yeah. So um, we're, I mean, it was canceled. For, it was supposed to be going on now. And right now we're just discussing what can we do um, once, you know, the vaccine is found, let's say, you know, and whether we can take it on again or some part of it. So that's still up in the air. Um, I am, I mean, I am like pretty much all my shows got postponed by a year. That's what what pretty much happened. Right. Um, well, has it been scheduled? Like, have your shows been, when you say they've all been postponed by a year, have you gotten, like, are people actually getting down the hard dates? So, some, some have. Yeah. Um, yeah, a couple of them have. Uh, others haven't. And, and that's fine by me, too, because I don't know what the, you know, next year is going to be like. No one does. I have a feeling. Yeah, exactly. So, we're just keeping fluid. Um, I'm extremely lucky because here in Canada, the government pays 70% of my assistant salary. Um, and then the guys, for example, that work at the shop who actually need to fabricate stuff, they, well, they haven't been able to go to the shop. So what we're doing is we're training them and they're receiving training that's paid for by the government, including their salary. So, I mean, I'm in such a good um, situation thanks yeah. to this public support that um, I'm not in a rush to, you know, like try and sell something or something like that. Uh, And I'm, I feel very, very, very lucky. It's amazing. So what you're saying is that if the government takes care of the people and puts in contingency plans, that it's not an absolute panic and everyone's running around losing their jobs and getting, going broke. And there's some semblance of uh, a caring continuity and, and, with that's health right. and with work, is that how it happens up there? That's how it happens. That's how it happens. That's why we're getting more and more American refugees coming here because yeah. they're like, yeah, we can't handle this madness, you know. I, um, I, I, one thing that is true though is I do, I do think this is temporary. I, I mean, it has yeah. to come to a breaking point, and uh, I am so looking forward to uh, being part of the 
the voices that that can create like or recreate what the United States has always been good at, you know, which is alterity and power, a sense of freedom of speech, a sense of, uh, you know, of of voices which have been um, empowered. You know, I, I, I'm aware of the incredible racial and uh, class and different struggles that you guys have. At the same time, the whole world looks up at the United States as this place that you know, elected a black man for president. Like, that's incredible. But, you know, like, it's, it's, the United States is, um, in the imaginary of the rest of the world, is a place where wonderful things can happen. And so we're all extremely concerned over the direction that you guys are taking. Um, not you, but like, you know, your government is taking. And I'm, I trust and I hope that it'll come to an end very shortly. Yeah, we're right there with you. <laughs> We're aligned in that train of thought. Um, well, it's been great talking. Where can people, that's the thing, I, I always feel ripped off because, you know, I like we used to show at the same gallery for like 30 seconds and then, you know, and I remember the piece you yeah. did in Madison Square. You know, like I've seen some of your work here and there, but I feel like I've only sure. been able to see a small percentage of your work in person, which is frustrating because I'm really into it. So. But where can people, how do you advise people who are unfamiliar or haven't seen a lot of it in person? Like, what's the best way to encounter your work without, you know, being able to see it in person? So, so far, um, uh, probably my website. So, lozano-hammer.com. Mm-hmm. Hammer is with uh, double M. And um, we, we, we haven't updated it in a bit, but it has lots of videos and lots of uh, uh, projects in there. Um, and then in there, there's also like a newsletter. So if you're interested, you could join that and then we'd keep you abreast whenever we, we do shows in your town. We do a lot of public art um, and there's, there's some coming to the States. We have a, a big piece opening in Washington, D.C. at a new museum of language, mm-hmm. which was supposed to happen now, but it's going to happen in the fall, I assume. And then another project. Anyway, so there's several projects, but in the website, lozano-hammer.com you can you can follow what we're doing great well it's been great talking same here thank you so much eh? and again apologies for my belligerent stance i actually could be funner (laughs) i could be funner like give me another chance some other time when i'm in a better mood (laughs) no it was great thank you okay thank you so much brian Thank you all for listening to Sound of Vision. Thanks for your support. Uh, thanks to the sponsors. Thanks to the musicians who led music. And uh, most of all, thank you for, for listening. And it's been a heavy time. Been a lot of stuff going on. Everyone stay safe and uh, stay healthy. And, you know, we all know what to do. Like, treat each other equally. Stand up for other people's rights, for all of our rights, and, and to uh, you know support each other, come together. It's important.